You're listening to highlights from the One Planet podcast interview with Ashley Dawson, author, scholar, environmental activist, and founder of the CUNY Climate Action Lab in New York City. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This is the century of the city for the first time. As of about 2007, the majority of humanity is an urban species, but it's important to note that the vast majority of urbanization is happening in cities of the global south. That is, you know, cities that are predominantly populated by poor people, by standards that have typically been associated with cities. These are places that where there are not a lot of jobs in the formal sector and where people often have to live in various forms of kind of informal housing, which is sometimes called slums, essentially. So if we talk about how to build resiliency in cities, we have to be very clear about which cities we're talking about, you know, and what resiliency might actually look like. So the city that I'm living in, New York City, is a city with big demographic inequalities, particularly between Manhattan, where there's a, a huge amount of wealth concentrated, and the outer boroughs, where they're predominantly immigrant populations, poor people, people of color. And those outer boroughs are places that are extremely threatened by various different forms of climate change, from storm surges associated with hurricanes and rising sea levels, like what happened with Hurricane Sandy last decade, to more kind of quotidian disasters like urban heat waves, which are striking cities more and more frequently. In a really wealthy city, obviously something like urban heat wave that impacts people in global south cities even more dramatically because, you know, most people living in places where the majority of people live in slums, they don't have access to air conditioners or, you know, cooling centers or anything uh, like what we take for granted to a certain extent in wealthy cities in the global north. So, you know, there are, there's a lot of really important innovation being done. Uh, New York City has been one of the sites for that. In particular, in my book, Extreme Cities, I talk about the Rebuild by Design competition, which tried to send teams of architects, designers, anthropologists, and sociologists out to the communities that were worst hit by Hurricane Sandy, like, for instance, on the east coast of Staten Island, the uh, borough that's in the south of the city, where a big storm surge inundated a lot of communities, and to get these teams to figure out what people really needed and how a rebuilding could be done that would include really cutting-edge forms of architectural design and urban transformation, but that would also help educate people about the dangers represented in the century of climate change to cities and how the social fabric itself could be better built back up to make society more resilient as well. So it's it's those kinds of pieces. And then thinking about how that kind of conjunction of infrastructural change and innovation and, and social transformation, you know, how we might even begin to contemplate that in cities like Lagos or Buenos Aires, you know, in the global south, that is really at the crux, I think, of your question. But you really put forth a, a bold vision. I'm thinking of a people's power reclaiming the energy commons. You set out why replacing coal-fired power plants with for-profit solar energy farms isn't radical enough. We need an even greater shift. We can no longer think of energy as a commodity. That's right. So that book of mine tried to 
tell a positive story about energy democracy and the possibility for not just shifting off fossil fuels, which we know we need to do if we're going to stop the you know, crisis of the climate emergency and the carbon emissions that generate it, right? I mean, think about the fact that fossil fuels and the burning of fossil fuels, whether it's to generate power or for transportation and automobiles and trucks and other things, you know, that, that's the major contribution to carbon emissions and to climate change. So we definitely need to transition away from those fossil fuels. We're not doing it fast enough. But as we do that, as we fight for that transition, we can also change the way that energy is provided and who benefits and, and how we control it, right? So energy democracy is that kind of sense that we get to really remake all of the infrastructures of everyday life. Why is there this potential for remaking infrastructures in a more democratic way? Well, if you think about how we most people consume fossil fuels, uh, well, particularly how we get our power. You know, when you flick on your lights, you don't usually think about where the power is coming from, but it's usually generated in a power plant, either a coal-fired power plant or increasingly in the U.S., a, a natural gas-fired power plant, methane-fired power plant that is somewhere in your city, but pretty far away from you or else in the countryside. And, you know, thousands and thousands, in some cases, millions of consumers are reliant on these centralized power plants that generate electricity. And they're also reliant on the big corporations that control these power plants and the distribution networks. In most cities in the United States, investor-owned utilities, these are kind of corporate utilities, they, they produce uh, power for 70% of Americans. So in most big cities in the United States, although there are exceptions like Los Angeles, where there's a publicly controlled power provider, but in most cities, there's some big corporate owned utility that's generating all of the people's power. And even though the rates that people pay for electricity are supposedly publicly regulated, in most cases, those regulators always just go along with what the big corporate utilities ask for when they ask for higher rates. And where does all that money, which comes from the rates that we pay, go to? Well, it goes into the pockets of investors. That's why these things are called investor-owned utilities. And they produce a, a, a lot of money for investors, you know, reliably about, you know, 12% profits. For Con Edison, the utility in New York City, that's, you know, around a billion dollars of, of profit every year. And these utilities have been mandated to upgrade their infrastructure to cope with climate change. But guess what? Are they doing it? No. You know, they're putting it back into the pay for their CEOs and their investors. So we need to have an alternative to these investor-owned utilities, both so that we can take the profits that come from people paying for their electricity and actually use it to build out resilient infrastructure, actually use it to speed the energy transition, but also so that people actually have some kind of a say. And renewable energy is particularly powerful in terms of its material characteristics for kind of helping us imagine and get to genuine energy democracy because the sun shines most places and the wind blows most places. I mean, some places more than others, but you know, you don't need some far very expensive power plant to to get solar power or wind power you know you can have a, a solar panel on your roof 
or you know a bunch of um, communities can get together and pay for a wind turbine, as has happened a lot in countries that have had a quick energy transition, like Germany, for instance, or Costa Rica. So there's the possibility for communities and people in general actually to have power, to control power, and also to save the planet in doing that and to get away from the fossil capitalist death spiral that we're in right now. We have to make this transition or it's going to kill us all. And it doesn't kill everyone at the same speed. This is also a question of environmental justice and racial and gender-based inequalities very much center here. I talked already about heat waves and how people in cities are at risk for heat waves. That plays out along demographic lines as a result of histories of redlining and other forms of racial discrimination in the U.S. It's communities of color that are most vulnerable to those forms of climate crisis. And it also just so happens that it's communities of color where most of the really polluting fossil capitalist infrastructure is located in cities like New York, right? And so the high rates of asthma and, and pulmonary disease and other health crises that affect these communities are directly linked to the kind of racial injustices that characterize our fossil capitalist infrastructure. So when we talk about the transition and we talk about energy democracy, we're also talking about energy justice, a transition towards racial justice. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening. <laughs>